This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 8, Historical Sanctions, an Inescapable Concept. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, He be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers, that saith of Cyprus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 44, 24-28 if Professor Muther's position on God's sanctions in history were true, then it would be impossible to construct an explicitly and uniquely biblical social theory, which is why, for over three centuries, those Christians who have espoused similar views of God's historical sanctions have failed to construct such a theory, and have rarely attempted to do so. This perspective on God's sanctions has been the dominant view within the modern church. Theologians of all schools have been content to baptize this or that Enlightenment social theory, or else they have publicly abandoned the quest for social theory, only to import some Enlightenment variant in the name of common grace. There is no neutrality. There is, however, self-deception. I am suggesting here that Muther and all of his common grace amillennial colleagues are self-deceived. Honesty as the Best Policy why do I argue that without the idea of predictable sanctions in history, there can be no social theory of any kind? Because, first, I am unaware of any social philosophy in history that has ever denied all forms of predictable sanctions, and some system of predictable sanctions in history must exist if social theory is conceivable. The question is, whose sanctions? Second, I cannot conceive of such a sanctionsless system. Neither can you. I think I can prove this. As a simple case study, consider the familiar aphorism Cervantes Don Quixote. Quote, Honesty is the best policy. Unquote. As in so many other instances, Ben Franklin is erroneously given credit for having said this first. In what sense is this aphorism true? Personally? Culturally? Where is the proof? What are the legitimate criteria of proof? What if God's corporate sanctions in history were perverse, which is what pessimillennialism teaches? What if honesty were to lead to economic poverty in most individual cases? Then it must also lead to poverty corporately. Would it still be the best policy? Only if we insist that only beyond the grave, though not in history, will honest individuals receive their appropriate rewards. This is the pessimillennialist assertion. But then only those people who believe in God's sanctions in a world beyond the grave would take the aphorism seriously. In the meantime, that is, in time, most people would pursue dishonesty. After all, dishonesty pays in history. Even if dishonesty and honesty were rewarded equally, i.e. Muther's inscrutability doctrine, this state of affairs would serve as a subsidy to dishonesty in a world in which original sin prevails. The dishonest person would not be any worse off in history than the honest person. If we are to examine the truth of the aphorism that honesty is the best policy, we must ask, answer, and then apply to the aphorism the Bible's five covenantal questions. 1. Who defines best and honesty? 2. Who enforces honesty institutionally? 3. Which rules tell us what honesty is in any given case? 4. What visible evidence do we have that honesty really is the best policy? 5. What successful society can we find in history in which honesty has been rewarded? Did it survive? Is there a God? If not, who assures us that honesty is the best policy? 
Who is impartial? The free market? The state? The forces of history? What? Any social philosophy that does not have a theory of sovereignty is not a serious social philosophy. Who represents the sovereign in the social system? Who speaks in his or its name? Officials of the state? Businessmen? Church officers? Educators? How do we know what the true sovereign requires from us? How do we know where to find an accurate interpretation of his rules? Where do we appeal our case when we are in conflict with each other? Then comes the question of historical sanctions. This is the central practical problem for social theory, verification. Visible Sanctions and Truth Without visible sanctions in history, there can be no public testimony to the truth or falsity of any assertion regarding the effectiveness of any proposed system of social organization. The theorist must be able to offer evidence from history that the application of his logic in history will have the positive results that he promises. This is not philosophical pragmatism. This is biblical covenantalism. The nations can see the benefits that come from obeying God's law. They can also see the righteousness of this law order. Deuteronomy 4, 4 4-8 The work of the law is written in their hearts. Romans 2, 14-15 Righteousness does not produce bad fruit. Quote, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Unquote. Luke 6, 43 In any free society, visible sanctions must be imposed in terms of a publicly announced system of law. Deuteronomy 31, 10-13. These public sanctions must be predictable. This is what law enforcement is all about. The imposition of negative sanctions against publicly proscribed behavior. Try to run a family or a business without law and sanctions. It cannot be done. But if you accept sanction, the idea that a legal order's sanctions can legitimately be random in terms of fundamental law you have accepted the legitimacy of tyranny and arbitrary rule. Nevertheless, Christian theologians insist that there is neither a required system of biblical civil law nor corporate sanctions imposed by God in terms of this binding legal order. The rejection of the idea of the reality of God's corporate covenantal sanctions in history parallels the rejection of the idea that biblical covenant law is supposed to govern society formally. Those who deny that biblical law is God's required corporate standard also hasten to assure us that God does not bring negative sanctions against societies that ignore this standard. In order to avoid being labeled antinomians, they usually assure us that there are God-imposed sanctions against evil personal behavior, but then the same five covenantal questions still need to be answered. They never are. If not God's sanctions, then whose? The problem here is the problem of formally specified judicial sanctions. A person has the legal right to receive the specified sanctions, as Paul asserted in his trial, Acts 25.11. Punishment is a fundamental right. In a classic essay, C.S. Lewis warned against any concept of civil sanctions in which they are not spelled out in advance. The indeterminate prison sentence, he argued, is a license for state tyranny. To be taken without consent from my home and friends, to lose my liberty, to undergo all those assaults on my personality which modern psychotherapy knows how to deliver, to be remade after some pattern of normality hatched in a Viennese laboratory to which I never professed allegiance, to know that this process will never end until either my captors have succeeded or I grow wise enough to cheat them with apparent success. Who cares whether this is called punishment or not? that it includes most of the elements for which any punishment is feared, shame, exile, bondage, and years eaten by the locust, is obvious. Only enormous ill-desert could justify it. But ill-desert is the very conception which the humanitarian theory has thrown overboard. In his novel, That Hideous Strength, Lewis has a weak-willed sociologist write a justification for the imposition of corrupt and total police rule in a local community. The ruling organization will come, wrote the young sociologist, quote, in the gracious role of a rescuer, a rescuer who can remove the criminal from the harsh sphere of punishment to that of remedial treatment, end quote. It is just such a concept of state tyranny 
that would result from the judicial prescriptions of Calvinist philosopher Robert Knudsen. He denies in the New Testament era any legitimacy of the formal requirements of the Old Covenant legal order. He insists, quote, In all their relationships, New Testament believers do not have less responsibility than their Old Testament counterparts for obeying God's will as expressed in his law. In fact, they have greater responsibility because it is not legally stipulated exactly what they should and should not do. End quote. Our responsibilities to each other are open-ended. Yet in any covenant, there are legal aspects, as Knudsen admits. These laws restrain the legitimate demands made by one person on another. It is significant that he discusses the family, marriage, and the church in this regard, but steadfastly ignores the state, as if it were not a covenant, as if Romans 13 did not describe the civil magistrate as a minister of God. Romans 13, 4, 6. Anyone who applies Newton's principle of open-ended personal responsibilities to civil law has created the foundation for arbitrary state power. The Rejection of Social Theory Whenever any Christian social theorist, amateur or professional, asserts that the New Covenant has annulled the Old Covenant's clear-cut system of positive and negative corporate sanctions, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, he is thereby denying the very possibility of developing a uniquely Christian social philosophy. Since there are no cultural or judicial vacuums in history, he is opening the door for the acceptance by Christians of rival anti-Christian social theories. Because the vast majority of Bible-believing Christian theologians have little awareness or interest in this process of social substitution, theological liberals do understand, they do not think carefully about the implications of their assertion regarding sanctions in history. They rarely adopt, self-consciously, the Hellenistic Greeks' natural law theory as a supplement to the Bible, nor do they suggest some other hybrid system. They simply assert that without evidence that the New Covenant era has no predictable sanctions by God, they tell us that the Old Covenant civil law is today null and void, and that there are that there has been no New Covenant resurrection of the Old Covenant's case laws. They strip the Church of any judicial authority in society at large, and then either call Christians to a life of sacrificial service, e.g. common grace amillennialism, or else warn them that such sacrificial service outside the narrow confines of tract passing is futile, e.g. pre-tribulational dispensationalism. What is astounding is that these same theologians in order to avoid being labeled as socially irrelevant, then insist that they do have something relevant to say to society. Not biblical, of course, but relevant nonetheless. Muther insists that, quote, we should address the social concerns of our day, unquote. To which I ask, precisely how, biblically speaking, by what standard, in what hope, at what price, with what results, why bother? Similarly, Hal Lindsey, insists that he is deeply concerned about social issues, but in the late great planet Earth, he contented himself with this one paragraph reference to Christian involvement on the very last page of his text. Quote, Fifth, we should plan our lives as though Christ may come today. We shouldn't drop out of school or worthwhile community activities or stop working or rush marriage or any such thing unless Christ leads us to do so. However, we should make the most of our time that is not taken up with the essentials. End quote. Try building a comprehensive biblical social theory in terms of such a call to Christian social involvement. I ask, what exactly should we study in school, and why, biblically speaking? What are worthwhile community activities, biblically speaking? Why should we bother if such activities are eschatologically doomed to failure? Lindsay and his pietistic colleagues, millions of them, do not say, I include Muther and all the common grace amillennialists as colleagues of Lindsay, judicially speaking. They all deny God's predictable sanctions during the era of the Church. How could they say? They have created a theological system on the question of the relevance of biblical social theory, it is a single system, that systematically and self-consciously denies both the possibility and the practicality of constructing a consistent, comprehensive, Bible-based social theory. They insist that God will not bring unique negative sanctions against covenant breakers this side of Christ's bodily return from heaven. He will also not bring unique positive sanctions to bless the cultural efforts of covenant keepers prior to the second coming. I ask, 
then who in his right mind would devote years of study and lots of personal capital to working out biblical principles of politics, education, economics, or anything else, given this kind of theology? We now have three centuries of accumulated evidence that provides the answer. Hardly anyone. This is the practical problem. It is a problem that pessimillennialists refuse to deal with. This is especially true of dispensational premillennialists, who have no tradition of academic excellence behind them, and who have not been pressured by their peers to deal with real-world social issues. The Dispensational View of History Alva J. McLean wrote a five-and-a-half-page essay on A Premillennial Philosophy of History for Dallas Seminary's Bibliotheca Sacra in 1956. McLean was the president of Grace Theological Seminary, a school which, along with Dallas, has dominated the training of dispensational pastors. His book on the dispensational kingdom would soon become a standard. He was a highly influential academic figure in these circles. This essay should be read by every dispensationalist, not to learn what this view of history is, which the essay never says, but to learn that a major theologian of the movement did not bother to describe it. In this essay, McLean rejected postmillennialism, although he did admit that, quote, classic postmillennialism had plenty of defects, but it did make a serious attempt to deal with human history, end quote. He then dismissed, in one paragraph per error, the following, modern liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, amillennialism, Louis Burkhoff, and all those who think there will never be such a golden age upon earth in history. This left exactly half a page for a thorough discussion of the premillennial view of history. He never did say what this is. He simply concluded, quote, The premillennial philosophy of history makes sense. It lays a biblical and rational basis for a truly optimistic view of human history, end quote. McLean refused even to mention the key historical issue for those living prior to the rapture. What is the premillennial basis for Christians' optimism regarding the long-term effects of their earthly efforts? Clearly there is none. The results of all of their efforts, pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialists would have to say that if they had the courage to discuss such things in public, will be all swallowed up during the seven-year Great Tribulation after the rapture. Even those people converted to Christ by today's evangelism will all be either dead or raptured out of history. All that will be left behind is a temporary glut of used cars with I break for the rapture bumper stickers. This is a self-consciously pessimistic view of the future of the church, and it has resulted in the triumph of humanism whenever it has been widely believed by Christians. Therefore, the intellectual leaders of dispensationalism refuse to discuss it forthrightly. It is just too embarrassing. They use the language of postmillennial optimism to disguise a thoroughgoing pessimism. They keep pointing to the glorious era of the millennium in order to defend their use of optimistic language, never bothering to admit that the seven years that precede the millennium will destroy the results of gospel preaching during the entire church age. After all, every Christian will have been raptured, removed from the earth at the rapture, whether it will be pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. This is an explicit denial of the historical continuity predicted in Christ's parable of the wheat and tares, Matthew 13, 20, 38-43. McLean's essay is representative of what has passed for world and life scholarship within dispensationalism since 1830. It avoided any discussion of the premillennial view of history, which was its explicit topic. The reader may be thinking to himself, but how did Alva McLean get away with this? Why did the editor publish such a piece? How could anyone be fooled this badly? The answer is simple, because they wanted to be fooled. They still do. They want to escape personal responsibility for the cultural success of the gospel of salvation in history. Anything that seems to further this end, they are willing to accept uncritically. We are not, right, we are not witnessing an intellectual failure only. We are witnessing a moral failure. It has been going on for well over a century. McLean's essay was only one small example of a way of life and a way of thinking about the gospel in history. The good news of Jesus Christ for a comparative handful of individuals thus far in church history is interpreted as bad news for the church's efforts in the church age as a whole. There can be no fulfillment of the Great Commission in history. This is trend setting, this is trend tending with the vengeance, but not God's vengeance. 
A Missed Opportunity. Consider when that article appeared. It was at the peak of the post-World War II period of American supremacy. Eisenhower was president. Khrushchev had only barely consolidated his power in the Soviet Union. His famous 1956 secret speech on Stalin's cult of personality had shaken the American Communist Party to the core, with many resignations as a result. In America, rock and roll was still in its Fats Domino, Bill Haley, Buddy Holly era, Elvis, early Elvis Presley phase. There was no conservative movement. William F. Buckley's National Review magazine was only a year old. No one outside of Arizona had heard of Barry Goldwater, whose run for the presidency came in 1964. Religiously, Dallas Seminary and Grace Seminary possessed something of a monopoly in fundamentalism. The neo-evangelical movement was less than a decade old. Billy Graham helped to start Christianity Today in 1956, but it had not yet begun its visible drift to its present middle-to-left position. Graham had not yet begun his cooperation at his crusades with local congregations that belonged to the National Council of Churches. He was a strong anti-communist in 1956, and the USSR had not yet started inviting him to give crusades that were followed by press conferences telling the world how there was no religious persecution in the Soviet Union. Solzhenitsyn was politely scathing in 1983 in his denunciation of Reverend Graham's services to the Soviet Union's tyrants in this regard. There was no six-day creationist movement to speak of. Morris and Whitcomb's Genesis Flood was five years away. Grace Seminary officially affirms the six-day creation. Dallas Seminary never has. Fuller Seminary was a small, struggling school that had not yet begun its drift into liberalism, ecumenism, and influence. Over the next 15 years, Dallas Seminary, Grace Seminary, and the newly created Talbot Seminary in California sat immobile and culturally silent while the rest of the country went through enormous changes. The conservative political movement got rolling visibly in 1960. Liberalism consolidated itself in the Kennedy and early Johnson years, but it was blown apart ethically during the Vietnam War era. Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963, and the myth of Camelot was retroactively created. The Beatles appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show the next February. Then all hell broke loose. Black ghettos rioted, beginning in Harlem in the summer of 1964. Watts went up in flames in 1965. The Rolling Stones had their first big hit in 1966. The youth movement went crazy, 1965 to 1970. It seemed that everyone under age 25 was asking the old social order to defend itself morally. It couldn't. And millions of people were asking many fundamental questions about life and society. Throughout all of this, nothing was heard from dispensationalism. An opportunity, not of a lifetime, but of a century, was missed. Dispensationalism lost its legitimacy, 1965 to 70. Its intellectual decline, since then, has been the result. Cultural Irrelevance for Jesus' Sake Then came what Tom Wolfe called the Me Decade, and Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, 1970, sold tens of millions of copies. Having forfeited moral and intellectual leadership, 1965-70, to 70, the Dallas Seminary faculty saw one of its less gifted graduates become the voice of the movement. Lindsey's career went into orbit, while two of his marriages failed. We're under grace, not law. Its message, Jesus is coming back real soon. Lindsay did not miss the social implications of dispensational theology. In his book, The Liberation of Planet Earth, 1974, there is not a, one word on the liberation of planet Earth. It is a 236-page book, no index, no scripture index, dealing exclusively with the doctrine of individual regeneration. He did include a section on the crucifixion, the day the planet was liberated, in his brief chapter on redemption. But then he limited his discussion to Christ's death for individuals. There is nothing on how Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God affects society. He did not even mention the family, understandable, or the church, also understandable. His book's title was as misleading as the title of McLean's essay. It did not deliver what was promised on the cover. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision, Roe v. Wade. That decision legalized abortion on demand. The case had originated in Dallas. What was Dallas Seminary's response? Silence. 
No calls for picketing, no press releases, no books, nothing. This is still Dallas Seminary's official position on legalized abortion, silence. In 1973, Dallas Seminary publicly relegated itself to social irrelevance. It had been doing so in its journal and in its classroom for over 40 years. A startling contrast. In that same year, 1973, R.J. Rushdoony's Institutes of Biblical Law appeared. So did my Introduction to Christian Economics. To assess the magnitude of the opportunity that dispensationalism forfeited, consider what Rushdoony did with practically no money, no degree-granting institution, and no mailing list of graduates. He began his book ministry in 1959 with a book on Van Til's philosophy, By What Standard?, and followed this effort with these. Intellectual Schizophrenia, 1961. The Messianic Character of American Education, 1963. This Independent Republic, 1964. The Nature of the American System, 1965. Freud, 1965. The Mythology of Science, 1967. Foundations of Social Order, 1968. The Myth of Overpopulation, 1969. The Biblical Philosophy of History, 1969. Politics of Guilt and Pity, 1970. Law and Liberty, 1971. The One and the Many, 1971. And The Flight from Human Humanity, 1973. He wrote a column every other week for The California Farmer, from which a collection of essays was taken, Bread Upon the Waters, 1969. He also intervened to get the Genesis Flood published by Presbyterian and Reformed after Moody Press turned it down. He had begun his newsletter on his shoestring in 1965. Speaking hundreds of times each year, reading an average of a book a day, Rush Dooney produced more books of lasting significance than the combined faculties of Dallas, Grace, and Talbot did in the same period, 1959-73. to 73. And I would also add, before or after. <clears throat> How did he do it? It was not that Rush Dooney was a genius or had a string of advanced academic degrees. He had a B.A. in English and an M.A. in education from Berkeley and a B.D. In the, from the liberal Pacific School of Religion. It was that he had a vision, a comprehensive integrated worldview, and also the personal dedication to defend that worldview intellectually. His worldview was not one of corporate defeat and social irrelevance for Christianity all in the name of Jesus. So, unlike Alva J. McLean and dispensationalism in general, Rush Dooney really did have a philosophy of history. He still does. Without the sugar coating. While the title of McLean's essay may have given the impression that premillennialism has a philosophy of history, the troops in the pews have not been fooled. Dave Hunt is willing to say publicly what dispensationalism means, and without any apologies. Dispensational theology obviously teaches the defeat of all the Church's cultural efforts before the rapture, since the millennium itself will be a cultural defeat for God, even with Jesus reigning here on earth in his perfect body. Quote, in fact, dominion, taking dominion and setting up the kingdom for Christ, is an impossibility even for God. The millennial reign of Christ, far from bringing the kingdom, is actually the final proof of the incorrigible nature of the human heart because Christ himself can't do what these people say they are going to do. End quote. Here we have it without any sugarcoating. There is no connection between God's exclusively spiritual kingdom and man's history, not even during the millennium. The world of fundamentalism is so radically divided between spirit and culture that even God himself cannot bind the two together. Such a binding is an impossibility, says Hunt. In the best-selling writings of Dave Hunt, the legacy of C.I. Schofield has come to fruition, a cultural rose which is all thorns and no blooms. Of course, dispensational seminary professors can protest that this is not the real dispensationalism, but this complaint assumes that the movement's scholars have produced a coherent alternative to pop dispensationalism. They haven't. They have forfeited moral and intellectual leadership to paperback theologians. They are silent neither critical of these amateurs nor positive about an alternative. They cling silently to their jobs and refuse to apply dispensational premises to their academic specialties. This keeps them out of trouble with the board of trustees. It also keeps them irrelevant. This, too, is consistent. Dispensationalists say that Christians in principle are important to reverse the downward drift of history, and to attempt to do so would be a waste of our scarce capital, especially time. 
while the academic leaders of dispensationalism have been too embarrassed to admit what is obviously a consistent cultural conclusion of their view of history, the popularizers have not hesitated, especially in response to criticism by the Reconstructionists. Here is what dispensationalist newsletter publisher Peter Lalande says regarding a friend of his who wants Christians to begin to work to change the secular world. Quote, It's a question, do you polish brass on a sinking ship? And if they're working on setting up new institutions instead of going out and winning the lost for Christ, then they're wasting the most valuable time on the planet Earth right now, and that is the serious problem in his thinking. End quote. The Theology of the Rescue Mission This is not the unique opinion of an obscure Canadian tabloid newspaper editor. Lalande is simply voicing what the intellectual leaders of dispensationalism have always said. Consider the words of John Welvord, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary. In the twilight of his career, he participated in a panel on the millennium, which was sponsored by Christianity Today. Kenneth Cancer asked him a key question. Cancer, for all of you who are not post-mills, is it worth your efforts to improve the physical, social, political situation on earth? Welvord, the answer is yes and no. We know that our efforts to make society Christianized are futile because the Bible doesn't teach it. On the other hand, the Bible certainly doesn't teach that we should be indifferent to injustice and famine and to all sorts of things that are wrong in our current civilization. Even though we know our efforts aren't going to bring a utopia, we should do what we can to have honest government and moral laws. It's very difficult from Scripture to advocate massive social improvement efforts, because certainly Paul didn't start any, and neither did Peter. They assumed that civilization as a whole is hopeless and subject to God's judgment. End quote. He then went on to observe that premillennialists run most of the rescue missions. Quote, premillennialists have a pretty good record in meeting the physical needs of people. End quote. This is quite true, but there is no doubt from his words that he does not believe it is possible for Christians to influence the creation of a world in which there will be freedom, righteousness, and productivity, a world in which fewer rescue missions will be necessary. His vision of social action is to get people out of the gutter, this is because his view of the gospel is to take people out of this world, first mentally and then physically at the rapture. For dispensationalism, this world is one gigantic gutter. It cannot be cleaned up during the church age. The best a Christian can hope for is to sit peacefully on a short, clean stretch of curbing on the sidelines of life. In response, Professor John J. Davis of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a post-millennialist, replied, quote, but generally speaking, the premillennialist is more oriented toward helping those who have been hurt by the system than by addressing the systematic evil, while the postmillennialist believes the system can be sanctified. That's the basic difference with regard to our relationship to society. End quote. This is exactly right. Welverd, a consistent representative of traditional dispensationalism, assures us, quote, We know that our efforts to make society Christianized are futile because the Bible doesn't teach it, end quote. He deliberately ignores the Old Testament prophets. He does not want Christians to preach prophetically, for the prophets called Israel back to obedience to biblical law, and dispensationalism rejects biblical law. Welverd calls only for a vague, undefined moral law to promote an equally vague, honest government. Without specifics, this is meaningless rhetoric. This is the theology of the rescue mission. Sober them up, give them a bath and a place to sleep, and then send them to church until they die or Jesus comes again. This is the Christian as a nice neighbor version of what should be salt and light theology. Save individuals, but not societies. Cancer. Are we saying here that this is that the Christian community, whether pre-mill, post-mill, or amill, must work both with individuals as well as seek to improve the structures of society? In other words, is there nothing within any of the millennial views that would prevent a believer from trying to improve society? Welvard. Well, the Bible says explicitly to do good to all men, especially those of faith. In other words, the Bible does give us broad commands to do good to the general public. End quote. Broad commands are worthless without specifics. A call to do good is meaningless without Bible-based standards of good. A communist or a New Age evolutionist could readily agree with Walvoord's statement, since it contains no specifics. The truth hurts. 
When dispensationalists are called pessimists by postmillennialists, as we postmillennialists unquestionably do call them, they react negatively. This is evidence of my contention that everyone recognizes the inhibiting effects of pessimism. People do not like being called pessimists. Wellverd is no exception, but his self-defense is most revealing. Quote, well, I personally object to the idea that premillennialism is pessimistic. We are simply realistic in believing that man cannot change the world, only God can. End quote. Realism. That sounds so much better. And what is the message of the dispensational realism? Pessimism. Quote, man cannot change the world, end quote. What in the world does this mean? That man is a robot? That God does everything all alone for both good and evil? Wellvord obviously does not mean this, so what does he mean? That men collectively can do evil but not good? Then what effect does the gospel have in history? If he does not want to make this preposterous conclusion, that he must mean that men who act apart from God's will, God's law, and God's Holy Spirit cannot improve the world long term. If God is willing to tolerate the victory of evil, there is nothing that Christians can do about it except try to get out of the way of the victorious sinners if we possibly can, while handing out gospel tracts on street corners and running local rescue missions. The question is, is God willing to tolerate the triumph of sinners over his church in history? Yes, say premillennialists and amillennialists. No, say postmillennialists. What Walvoord is implying but not saying is that the postmillennialist doctrine of the historical power of regeneration, the historical power of the Holy Spirit, the historical power of biblical law, God's historical sanctions, and the continuing New Testament validity of God's dominion covenant with man, Genesis 1, 26-28, is theologically erroneous, and perhaps even borderline heretical. But this, of course, is precisely the reason we postmillennialists refer to premillennialists as pessimistic. They implicitly hold the reverse doctrinal viewpoints. The historical lack of power of regeneration, the historical lack of power of the Holy Spirit, the historical lack of power of biblical law, and the present suspension of God's dominion covenant with man. Carl McIntyre's tiny premillennial Bible Presbyterian Church in 1970 went on record officially as condemning any New Testament application to society of God's cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28. Walvoord says that only God can change the world. Quite true. But who does he think the postmillennialists believe will change the world for the better? Of course God must change the world. Given the depravity of man, he is the only one who can. But how does he do this? Through demons? No. Through fallen men who are on the side of demons in their rebellion against God? No. So what is God's historic means of making the world better? The preaching of the gospel. This is what postmillennialists have always taught, and the comprehensive success of the gospel in history is what premillennialists have always denied. They categorically deny that the gospel of Christ will ever change most men's hearts at any future point in history. The gospel in this view is a primarily a means of condemning a gospel-rejecting people to hell, not a program leading to the victory of Christ's people in history. The gospel cannot transform the world, they insist. Yet they resent being called pessimists. Such resentment is futile. They are pessimists, and no amount of complaining and waffling can conceal it. A perfect pessimism. Pessimism regarding the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in history is what best defines pessimism. There is no pessimism in the history of man that is more pessimistic than this eschatological pessimism regarding the power of the gospel in history. The universal destruction of mankind by nuclear war, a myth by the way, is downright optimistic compared to pessimism with regard to the transforming power of the gospel in history. This pessimism testifies that the incorrigible human heart is more powerful than God in human history, that Satan's defeat of Adam in the garden is more powerful in history than Christ's defeat of Satan at Calvary. It denies Paul's doctrine of triumphant grace in history. Quote, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Romans 5.20 In pessimillennial theologies, grace struggles so that sin might more abound in history. Few have said it more fearlessly than Lehman Strauss in Bibliotheca Sacra, Dallas Seminary's scholarly journal. Quote, 
We are witnessing in this 20th century the collapse of civilization. It is obvious that we are advancing toward the end of the age. Science can offer no hope for the future blessing and security of humanity, but instead it has produced devastating and deadly results which threaten to lead us toward a new dark age. The frightful uprisings among races, the almost unbelievable conquests of communism, and the growing anti-religious philosophy throughout the world all spell out the fact that doom is certain. I can see no bright prospects through the efforts of man for the earth and its inhabitants. End quote. What is Christian man's hope? The rapture. And what of the vast majority of non-Christian men who will not participate in the rapture? No dispensationalist likes to discuss this publicly. The question answers itself. Armageddon, the Great Tribulation. And if they survive this, a thousand years under Jesus' one-world bureaucratic state, will they be saved then? Probably not. The social an answer is a future millennial bureaucracy, for which there are no operational blueprints this side of the second coming of Christ. Because this attitude toward social change steadily became ascendant after 1870, those who dominate modern society, non-Christians, have had few reasons to take Christians very seriously. American Christians have been in self-conscious cultural retreat from historic reality and cultural responsibility for most of this century. Meanwhile, as non-Christians have become steadily more consistent with their own worldview, they have begun to recognize more clearly who their enemies really are. Christians who proclaim the God of the Bible, i.e. the God of final judgment. Thus, we are now seeing in the United States an escalation of the inherent, inevitable conflict between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. This conflict can be cut short, of course, by God's negative sanctions against the society and or by the conversion of large numbers of present covenant breakers. There is always an if element in every supposedly inevitable trend. The Quest for Relevance Nevertheless, pessimillennial pietists publicly profess concern regarding the irrelevance of Christianity today. They know that Christians should have answers to the dilemmas of the day, even if pagans refuse to accept our answers. This may be why Hal Lindsey's publisher insisted on a relevant-sounding title, The Liberation of Planet Earth, even though the book said nothing about it. The problem facing those who would mobilize the evangelical Christian community is that this community has taken its pietism very seriously. The people in the pews have assimilated the teaching of a century of pietism. Its leaders therefore have devoted little effort and less money to developing specific answers to obvious social problems. Example, where are the uniquely Christian medical schools and hospitals when sick people seek healing? Oral Roberts built a hospital and medical school, but he lost tens of millions of dollars, maybe much more. He wound up with an unfinished hospital with a statue of praying hands in front of it. What uniquely Christian approaches to healing and health maintenance should Christian medical treatment provide? No answers. No one in the evangelical world even tries to discover such answers. This is consistent. Another example, where are the Christian lawyers? Today, churches and Christian day schools are visibly under attack by humanist politicians and bureaucrats. Where are the certified defenders? Oral Roberts started a law school, lost a fortune, and shut it down. Furthermore, what uniquely Christian legal principles, as distinguished from medieval Roman Catholic scholastic natural law theory or 18th century Jeffersonian and Madisonian political theory, should a Christian law school teach? No one says. No one holding a pietistic theology can say, pietism denies, pietism denies that anything so worldly can or should be said. This is why every attempt on the part of theological pietists to create interest in Christian social involvement leads their brighter recruits directly into the camp of either the Christian Reconstructionists or the Liberation Theologians. These newly motivated recruits do understand that you can't beat something with nothing, but the pietists offer Christians nothing specific, nothing concrete, nothing uniquely biblical on what to do to build alternatives to a collapsing social order. The Theonomists do. A recent book from the dispensational camp illustrates the growing problem faced by the movement. Kirby Anderson, a dispensationalist, is also a strong defender of Christian social involvement. He has edited a book titled Living Ethically in the 90s. Surely this is a worthy goal, 
but the book's title presents a monumental problem for dispensationalists. How does one live ethically? This was Schaeffer's unanswered question. How should we then live? If biblical law is not morally binding in the New Covenant era, then how do Christians know what righteous living is? The book raises the question of ethical standards, meaning permanent ethical principles. This is the question of law. For a Christian, it is this issue. Biblical law versus non-biblical law. It is a question that dispensationalists have done their best to avoid asking, let alone answer, since 1830. The book reveals the escalating theological schizophrenia within the dispensationalist camp. Gary R. Williams writes an essay defending the efficacy of the Old Testament's penal sanctions. They are better than the modern humanist civil sanctions of prison, he insists correctly. This, of course, has been the Christian Reconstructionist view since the beginning of the movement. The prison system, writes Rush Dooney in the Institutes of Biblical Law, is a humanistic device. Norman Geisler, seeing exactly where such an argument leads, to Bonson's theonomy and possibly even to Tyler's covenant theology, defends Thomistic natural law theory. Geisler recognizes that if you begin to defend Old Testament civil sanctions for any reason, you have taken a major step in the direction of affirming the New Testament authority of Old Testament law in general. He sees that the covenant is a package deal. You cannot accept Old Testament law pragmatically and then expect people to believe that Old Testament laws are not also morally and judicially binding. You cannot tell people that Old Testament civil law works better than all the non-biblical alternatives and then repeat the heart of dispensational ethical theory, namely, we're under grace, not law. Of course, we are under grace. The question that non-theonomists do not wish to face is this. Whose civil law should Christians be under? God's or man's? They prefer the myth of neutrality and pluralism. Dr. Geisler instinctively sees that you cannot pragmatically defend the legitimacy of Old Testament laws on the basis of sanctions, point four of the biblical covenant model, and then expect to deny successfully biblical law's moral legitimacy based on its authority, point two. But Geisler is fast becoming a voice crying in the antinomian wilderness of the traditional dispensational camp. His colleagues, tired of wandering in the ethical wilderness, want to stop at a judicial oasis and get a drink. But Geisler sees the risk involved. The theonomists brought up all the judicial bought up all the judicial oases back in the 1970s, when they were cheap, and will now extract monopoly rents. The theonomists will demand a high price, the operational abandonment of the dispensational system. This will eventually lead to a quiet, unannounced but nonetheless effective theological abandonment of the system. The impossible dream. The pessimillennialists want Christianity to be relevant in history, yet they have publicly denied the theological foundations of historical relevance. 1. The continuing new covenant relevance of God's old, co old covenant social and civil laws. 2. God's historical sanctions applied in terms of those laws. and 3. Historical continuity between the present and the prophesied era of millennial blessings that will take place on earth and in history. How can they sensibly expect their followers to take seriously their assertion of Christianity's historical relevance, let alone the historical relevance of their own efforts? C.S. Lewis described about a similar problem in his 1947 essay, Men Without Chests. Quote, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. End quote. Conclusion Social theory requires a unified, authoritative concept of good and bad, right and wrong, efficient and inefficient. To be consistent, it must affirm the existence of known or at least knowable standards, and it must also affirm that there is a sanctioning process that rewards the good or the efficient and penalizes the bad or the inefficient. If the standards are affirmed without also affirming appropriate sanctions, then there is no way for society to ensure justice. There is also no way for it to ensure progress. Modern Christian theology has denied both biblical law, the standards, and God's historical sanctions. It has therefore sought the standards of society elsewhere. Occasionally, Christian social commentators appeal openly to stoic medieval natural law theory to provide the standards. 
Mostly they do not identify the source of their standards. If they seek standards elsewhere than in the Bible, they are forced to import modern, post-Newtonian standards into their social theories. But this leaves them vulnerable to post-Darwinian standards, which is to say vulnerable to the tender mercies of either free-market social Darwinism with its doctrine of the survival of the fittest, Herbert Spencer, William Graham Sumner, or elitist, scientifically planned, state-directed, tax-financed social Darwinism, Lester Frank Ward. Dispensationalists have generally avoided even discussing social theory. They recognize their theological dilemma and have prudently remained silent. Neo-evangelical social scientists have spoken out in the name of Jesus and have sounded very much like a cassette tape of some abandoned political program of a decade earlier. Amillennialists have generally done what the neo-evangelical premillennialists have, baptized secular humanism, meaning politically liberal humanism. They have generally adopted the worldview of the professors who certify them at humanist universities. There has to be a better way. Christians will never beat something with nothing. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.